Captain Henry Lawton couldn't have been in the best of moods. It was the very end of July, and he was two months into what had been a dismal, grinding, nearly soul-crushing campaign across Sonora with nothing to show for it. A few weeks earlier, everything seemed right in his grasp, but it had all slipped out of his fingers like so much sand when his foe, the Chiricahua Apache, had upped and slipped away at a moment's notice. After that, his men were too exhausted and emotionally spent to do anything more than some perfunctory reconnaissance in the area around. But Lawton had a mission, a promise that he had made to his superior officer, his men, his wife, and most importantly himself. He was going to stay in the Sierra Madres until he found Geronimo, and the wily old renegade either surrendered or was killed. And, to be honest, it's kind of easy to figure out which one of those options Lawton preferred. So, you can imagine what he must have thought when, on August 1st, 1886, he learned that he wasn't the only army officer in the area on a mission to find Geronimo. Except this other officer wasn't taking quite the same tack as he was. In fact, he was traveling around with two Apache who actually knew Geronimo and had ridden with him. And his mission wasn't make Geronimo bow the knee or kill him. He was offering... diplomacy. No, Captain Lawton was not happy about this development at all. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 112, A Fool's Errand. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered the long, slow slog of Captain Lawton and his men as they tried to track down Geronimo, Nightshade, and their followers in the incredibly hot, insect-filled deserts and canyons of Mexico. This included just barely missing the hostiles after trying to surround their camp on July 13, 1886. Though they are so tantalizingly close to wrapping up the whole Apache Wars, something they were completely unaware of, we need to quickly divert our focus before circling back around to them at the beginning of August 1886. Because first we need to follow up with General Miles in Arizona as he was making moves of his own that would contribute to both the end of the hunt for Geronimo and the ultimate destiny of the Chiricahua and not in a good way. While Lawton and his men were dealing with marches and 120-degree weather, Miles had made a trip of his own up to visit the Chiricahua on Fort Apache. This was not just a friendly social call. Already deeply suspicious and mistrustful of the reservation Chiricahua, Miles had started to formulate an idea to resolve everything, or to at least remove the problem from his jurisdiction. You might remember from the episodes with Crook that Miles was a proponent of just uprooting all the Apache and transplanting them somewhere else, mainly Oklahoma. This idea, which included all the Chiricahua, whether they had broken out with Geronimo or not, had been met with strenuous objections from both Crook and Captain Crawford. They had managed to shout down the idea, but, well, Crawford is now dead and buried, and Crook is up in Nebraska. 
so there was now very little stopping Miles from resurrecting this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. And that started with a trip to visit Fort Apache. He arrived on June 30th, and his delegation included none other than Tom Jeffords, who served as his liaison with the Chiricahua, an appointment which would open doors for the general. But from the moment he set foot on the reservation, Miles did not like what he saw. He was horrified that the Chiricahua were still allowed their arms, a right granted to them by Crook from when they had last surrendered. He also saw evidence of the Tiswin binges that were still a deeply ingrained problem on the reservation. The Apache had grown a lot of corn, too much to simply eat, if you catch my drift. So when he met with the Apache leaders, he almost instantly jumped into a spiel about how they had to be removed from the reservation and sent somewhere else. His reasoning was rather simplistic, showing both no sense of nuance and a natural predilection against the Apache. His first reason was simply, people don't seem to like you. By this he meant both whites and other Apache, seizing on the hostilities that nearly had broken out between the White Mountain and Chiricahua Apache in the aftermath of Ulsana's raid in November 1885, when a Sibiku man had killed one of the Chiricahua raiders. And we covered that back in episode 107. It was pretty much a shallow pretext that he's seizing on here as nothing had actually happened and everyone had been really peaceful since. The second reason he gave was that the Apache were still getting drunk on Tiswin and devolving into violence. Miles would actually write that the stillness of the reservation nights were often broken by, quote, the discharge of rifles and pistols in their savage orgies, end quote. Like I said, it's not like the general is coming into this from a dispassionate place. Miles' solution was for the Chiricahua to form a delegation that would be sent to Washington, D.C. to discuss the plans for their people, stopping along the way to look at new potential reservation sites. And this delegation was eventually formed, and was comprised of 10 prominent Chiricahua leaders from the Choconan and Cheheni bands, including our old friends Chato, Loco, and Kaitene. I will note here that removing the Chiricahua didn't have to be as bad as it will shortly be. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says that many would have welcomed going to one of the Apache reservations in New Mexico, and some even wanted to go to the Navajo reservation. However, these ideas were all non-starters. The government considered the Chiricahua to be radioactive, and they would contaminate any other tribe they touched if they were allowed to stay in the Southwest. This was a view helped along by a report that Miles would send in the early days of July. On July 3rd, he wired the general overseeing the Department of the Pacific, saying, quote, There are the strongest military reasons these Indians should be removed outside of Arizona. End quote. This was followed up with a report sent on July 7th, where again he made this argument, mostly built up on the same half-truths and dubious facts that already colored his view of the Apache. For example, he said the reservation Chiricahua were, quote, in better fighting condition today than ever before, end quote, which was simply ridiculous. He also gave the ominous but groundless assertion that even beating Geronimo would not solve the issue in Arizona. Because, Miles claimed, 
the sons of the Apache on the reservation would become, quote, the Geronimos of tomorrow, end quote. Not mentioned were the facts that the peaceful Chiricahua had been sitting on the reservation for three years without incident, at least three-fourths of the men had served as scouts, and they had never furnished support for the renegades. The other side of this July 7th report, however, was built on a very common sense and, dare I say, somewhat compassionate case about moving the Apache to Oklahoma and giving them land to settle on. The report containing these two ideas was dutifully sent up the chain, but it would not arrive at the War Department until July 27th. General Philip Sheridan wouldn't read it until July 30th, and he only really glommed onto Miles' suggestion to remove the Chiricahua and not the argument for where. But really, by that time, things were moving too fast to change the Chiricahua's fate. So on July 13th, 1886, consequently the same day that Lawton almost caught Geronimo, the delegation of Chiricahua going to Washington left the train station. This group would arrive in the nation's capital on July 17th, two days after Sheridan sent Miles a telegram that said in no uncertain terms that the Apache could not be settled anywhere west of the Missouri River. So that meant the Indian territories in Oklahoma were definitely out. Now, the delegation was housed at the Beverage Hotel, eight blocks from the White House, where many previous Amerindian delegations had been housed. Here they were met by a familiar face, Captain John Burke, Crook's former right-hand man and biographer, who was horrified at the conditions of the hotel. So Burke would spend some time with his old scout friends and got them out of their lodgings to treat them to a day on the town. They took in a show at a local theater that included a Mexican band and an opera singer. Next was a visit to a soda fountain, which the Apache apparently liked very much, followed by an ice cream parlor, which they didn't enjoy as much because the cold hurt their mouths. But after the fun, the real work had to begin. First came a meeting with the Secretary of the Interior, who had the delightfully Roman name of Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar. During this meeting, Lamar gave a nice little lecture about the necessity of removing the Apache to the east, but Loco, acting as the Chiricahua spokesman, said they were happy right where they were. Lamar gave a polite smile, and the meeting ended. The next day, July 26, they met with Secretary of War William Endicott. Now, Chattel led the delegation as spokesman for this meeting, telling Endicott that the Apache much preferred to stay at Fort Apache, where the land was good, with plenty of grass and water. He also took his chance to ask about what could be done to retrieve his family from Mexico, which was his main impetus for joining up with Crook and the scouts in the first place. Endicott gave assurances that he would look into it and that he was sure everything that could be done was being done. I don't feel that I need to tell you, but... Chattel would never see his family again. The following day, July 27th, was the big meeting. The delegation was able to meet with President Grover Cleveland himself in the White House. It wasn't much of a meeting, more perfunctory than anything, and author Paul Andrew Hutton says that the Apache had been instructed to not speak to the president unless spoken to. 
In our modern parlance, this was a simple grip-and-grin meeting, not representatives of two states meeting to discuss serious matters. Either during this meeting, or the earlier one with Lamar, I've seen it both ways, Chato had been gifted a silver peace medal, something that he interpreted as a sign that the head of the White Eyes was going to allow them to stay on their land. After all, during their meeting in the White House, and with Secretary Endicott, no one had mentioned anything about finding new reservation sites. What the Chiricahua were blissfully unaware of was the treachery swirling all around them. Because just three days after they met with the president, Sheridan finally read Miles's July 7th report and was instantly convinced that the Chiricahua had to go. Sheridan knew that Miles had a habit of bending the truth to suit his purposes, but this time he still swallowed everything, hook, line, and sinker. He became convinced that it was Crook who had been sugarcoating things in his reports, and that the 71 Chiricahua men at Fort Apache were mere moments away from rising up to join Geronimo. Sheridan, like Miles, like Endicott, like Cleveland, like everybody in America, couldn't conceive that there basically was what Sweeney describes as an undeclared civil war between the peaceful and hostile factions of the Chiricahua. Even worse, Sheridan thought that if the delegation returned to Fort Apache empty-handed, it would be just the excuse the Chiricahua needed to break out. Therefore, he made a knee-jerk decision. The delegation and all adult males at Fort Apache should be sent to Fort Marion, Florida, and held as prisoners of war until this business with Geronimo could be sorted out. With this recommendation now out there, President Cleveland called for an emergency meeting at the White House on July 31, 1886. This meeting included Endicott, Lamar, Burke, and Captain Joseph Dorst, who was the Chiricahua's handler while in D.C., and a representative for General Miles. It was during this meeting that Cleveland laid out his proposal, heavily based on Sheridan's recommendation, but going just that extra bit further. All the Chiricahua should be removed to Fort Marion. The delegation should be held temporarily at Fort Leavenworth until they too could be sent to join the rest in the Sunshine State. Dorst, predictably, was all for it. He was Miles' representative, after all, and Miles favored removal. Burke, predictably, was horrified. He protested vigorously, reminding everyone that when the Chiricahua had surrendered to Crook in 1883, he had promised them that they could stay on the reservation. Since then, many had given valuable service to the Army of Scouts. To do what Cleveland was proposing was to make Crook the army, and America itself into liars. And it could induce other Apache to revolt, seeing that the White Eyes couldn't be trusted. But even while he made these arguments, Burke could see that he was outnumbered. No one in this meeting beside himself really knew or cared about the Apache. The captain would angrily write about this meeting in his journal, saying about Cleveland, quote, I could not help remarking what an enormous neck he had, and how very small a head. He impressed me as being self-opinionated, stubborn, and not too tenacious of the truth, a man of great sinuosity of morals, narrow in his views, 
fond of flattery and lacking the breadth of thought which extended travel and study alone can give. End quote. To stall for time while Cleveland made his final official decision, the delegation of Chiricahua in Washington were sent off to a visit of the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, despite their desire to return home. They never would get home. The closest they would come was being stopped at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas in mid-August. After this meeting in the White House ended, Sheridan wired Miles to again say that moving the Chiricahua to somewhere west of the Missouri River was simply not an option. Part of this was because Congress literally had to change the law to allow the Apache to settle in the Indian territories. But the greater factor was the public perception in Washington that the Apache could not be allowed anywhere near the Southwest. No, they were better off being sent to Florida to live as POWs. After relaying this news, Sheridan then asked the million-dollar question. If the Chiricahua had to be removed by force... Could Miles and his troops handle it? I'm going to leave the answer to that particular question dangling for now, both because it creates dramatic tension, but also because these conversations about forcefully removing the Chiricahua from Arizona were not the only conversations Miles was having in July. One of the reasons the general was so dead set on removing the Apache from Arizona was he knew Geronimo and Nietzsche had made it to the Sierra Madres again, which greatly reduced the odds of Lawton being able to find and defeat them militarily. But any good strategist will tell you that you have to have contingencies on top of contingencies when it comes to difficult situations, so Miles started working yet another angle. Back on July 1st, during his visit to Fort Apache, Miles met with a warrior who had actually deserted from Nietzsche's group back in May and who had surrendered. This warrior gave a report that got some wheels turning in the general's mind. Specifically, he said that most of the renegades were dispirited and would welcome a chance to give up. And so Miles decided that he wanted to send a peace delegation to find Geronimo and try to convince him to surrender. That's right. We are now back to the same strategy that Crook had employed, which is probably why Miles failed to tell Sheridan and others about this particular strategy. It could also have been because Miles didn't technically have the authority to offer the hostiles in Mexico any terms, though he had some nebulous powers to offer limited conditions, such as sparing their lives. So he had this super-secret plan to end the conflict, except finding someone to send was easier said than done. Miles wanted former scouts who had once ridden with Geronimo and would be trusted by him, but his initial inquiries about who would fit this bill fell flat. The deserting warrior who brought the news had no desire to ride back down into Mexico. Another choice was Bonito, who once upon a time had actually caused Geronimo to flee the reservation and had ridden with him, but Bonito had recently married a white mountain Apache woman and now considered himself one of them and not a Chiricahua, which is actually part of Apache tradition. Many of the Chehenis, or Locos people, had no great love for Geronimo, and so they flat out refused to help. Eventually, the Chaconan band would recommend two men, Cayeta and Martina, 
who had relatives among the renegades and were well acquainted with Geronimo himself, which means they could actually get close to him without getting shot. Miles had the two enlisted as scouts and gave them their mission. Find Geronimo and tell him that he needed to surrender. But there was no way Miles was going to trust the pair on their own to accomplish this task. They were, after all, savage Apache that he was trying to root out of the territory completely. So the general decided that he needed to appoint a supervisor to go with them and ensure that they accomplished the mission. With Captain Crawford now dead and Lieutenant Davis retired, there were very few people left who could be entrusted with this task. I should point out that Tom Jeffords should have been a logical choice for this, as he knew the Apache and he knew Geronimo, even if he didn't have a high opinion of him. And Miles had just used Jeffords as a liaison, so he knew the former Indian agent and his capabilities. But for whatever reason, the general decided to bypass Jeffords, and so he remains just a tantalizing look at an alternate history. The man he did settle on was Lieutenant Charles Gatewood, the one-time commander of Fort Apache, who has appeared off and on in the podcast. The Apache knew and trusted Gatewood, who they called Bay Chen Dason, or Long Nose. And I have to say, I've taken quite the shine to the very un-PC names the Apache liked to give people. Gatewood had fallen out with Crook and was now commanding a company of Navajo scouts at Fort Wingate in New Mexico. He had long gotten over any sense of romance in his army career and with working with native scouts. Suffering from a variety of ailments, he really, truly wanted another gig, hopefully one that would take him out of the Southwest entirely. And we'll see a bit of that attitude creep into this next assignment, as he is more than once going to drag his feet in getting it done. Miles caught up with the lieutenant while he was on official assignment in Albuquerque. I'll digress to say that the date of this meeting was July 13th, which is really a red-letter day in the history of the Apache Wars. As we just saw, it was the same day that Chato and the Nine Chiricahua with him left for their trip to Washington. And as previously mentioned, it was also the day that Lawton missed it by that much with Geronimo and Nietzsche's camp down in Mexico. I hope that gives you a sense of how the three narrative plots concerning the Chiricahua were really going on all at once. But back to Miles's meeting with Gatewood. The lieutenant was not really that receptive. As I said, he wanted out, not to become more involved. So wandering around the desert with a small escort and two Apache scouts was not something that he was going to leap to do. And quite frankly, he didn't think it was going to work. He thought it was nothing more than a fool's errand. Finally, though, Miles was able to persuade the lieutenant by offering him a position as his aide-de-camp, a cushy staff gig that would at least alleviate some of Gatewood's discomfort and would be more appealing than typical fort life. Probably with some ill humor and a scowl, Gatewood accepted the position and started his journey towards Fort Bowie. There he met with Cayeta and Martina and started heading down toward Mexico. His retinue was small, just a handful of men that could be trusted or needed to look after the animals. He was supposed to pick up some soldiers too to keep him from being turned into a captive by the renegades when he found them, 
but one garrison definitely did not look like it could handle the rigors of the adventure at all, while the head of another garrison had suspiciously no men that he could spare for the expedition. By July 21st, Gatewood, Cayeta, and Martina and their entourage had made it to Carretas in Sonora, where they met with Lieutenant James Parker, who had been ordered to halt and wait for the delegation to arrive. You probably don't remember, but this is Parker's second appearance in our podcast. Back in episode 102, he was stationed up at Fort Apache in 1884, where he knew Geronimo, and is one of the few army officers to walk away with a positive recollection of the renegade. He's the lieutenant that was on the hunting trip when the fort's surgeon asked Geronimo to rub two sticks together to light his cigarette. Parker had actually found the trail of some Apache, but announced that they couldn't follow it as it had been washed away by monsoon rains. Proving that his heart was never really into this assignment, Gatewood said that he should definitely, you know, turn around and go report this to Miles. Cue the Simpson-esque sound effects of a man jumping out of a bathroom window, jumping into a car, and driving away. Lieutenant Parker would not have it, saying that if Miles had given Gatewood this assignment, then by golly he was going to find a trail. Or, at the very least, lead Gatewood to Lawton, who would then find the trail. Gatewood protested again, saying that he was too sick to continue with this mission and that they might as well throw in the towel now. But Parker would not hear of it, telling Gatewood to sit down and recuperate, and then the whole company would get going. Left without any excuse to run back toward the United States, Gatewood elected to rest up six days before proceeding. I'm not sure how much of that length of time was him drawing out the inevitable, but it is possible that he was actually sick, perhaps with dysentery. His health was not the greatest, so this wasn't just a case of Ferris trying to get out of his test on European socialism. Finally, though, there was no point in delaying any longer, and Parker led Gatewood and his men into the Sierra Madres, where they would rendezvous with Captain Lawton on August 3rd. The captain made no bones about the fact that he hated Gatewood's mission, and if he had his druthers, he wouldn't even allow it to happen. He said, quote, I get my orders from President Cleveland direct. I am ordered to hunt Geronimo down and kill him. I cannot treat with him, end quote. Parker would spend several days arguing with Lawton, convincing him that Miles had changed his strategy and that it was the captain's job to get in line with the new direction. Finally, begrudgingly, Lawton agreed to bring Gatewood with him, and if, and it was a big if, he got near Geronimo, he would allow Gatewood and his Apache scouts to try their hand at talking. However, he added this caveat, quote, But if I find Geronimo, I will attack him. I refuse to have anything to do with this plan to treat with him. If Gatewood wants to treat with him, he can do it on his own hook. End quote. The real irony here is that, though he had to persuade Lawton to let him complete his mission, Gatewood actually felt the exact same way as the captain. He would confess to Leonard Wood, the assistant surgeon, that he had, quote, no faith in the plan and was disgusted with it, end quote. Falling back on his old tricks, he even tried to get sent back to the U.S., complaining of an old inflammation of the bladder that made writing difficult, 
with a lot of extra coughing and hacking, I'm sure, he actually asked Wood to give him a medical certificate that would allow him to return to Fort Bowie. Unfortunately, Wood refused to grant this request, either because he didn't think Gatewood was in that bad of shape, or because he felt that the lieutenant was the only hope at making peace. Eventually, the addition of Gatewood to the party seemed to lift Lawton's sagging spirits, which were pretty low after the failed attack on the Chiricahua camp less than a month earlier. Making the best of the situation at hand, or perhaps realizing that the military option just wasn't that viable, he would write with renewed vigor, quote, Now that I have Gatewood with me, and he has authority to communicate with them and offer them a chance to surrender, I have great hopes of winding up the war soon. All I want now is to find the trail again. End quote. You have to admit that's quite the turnaround for a guy who just a few days earlier had said he wouldn't have anything to do with the plan. But now the only obstacle that remained was finding the Apache so Gatewood, or rather Cayeta and Martina, could do their thing. The group now went on a long scout toward the area where Crawford had had his fateful run-in with both the Chiricahua and the Mexicans. They had only gone eight miles when they got news. While Lawton and his men had been recuperating in the Sierra Madres, Geronimo, Nietzsche, and their company had actually left the area altogether. On August 8th, they were up near Uris, where they had struck a mule train. So just like that, Lawton, Gatewood, Cayeta, and Martina, and all the soldiers turned around and headed up north. It was time to finally get to Geronimo. Join me next week when we will follow the renegades in talks to create a lasting peace, but with the Mexicans rather than the Americans. It would only be after that false start that Geronimo would be ready to listen to Cayetas and Martinez overtures. But before we leave off this week, I just wanted to take another moment and give a heartfelt thank you again to everyone who took the end of last week's episode to heart and used the newly operational donate button on the website, azhistorypodcast.com. I've been simultaneously touched and blown away by your generosity. Thank you so much for your support, and I can't wait to talk to you all again next week. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.